Section number 61 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey DeSena, Cordelaine. Chapter 16 the Anglican Settlement and the Scottish Reformation by F. W. Maitland, Part 4. In August 1560, a Parliament met at Edinburgh to do for Scotland what the English Parliament had done in 1559. The Pope's authority was rejected and the Mass was abolished. Upon a third conviction, the sayer or hearer of a Mass was to be put to death. A confession of faith had been rapidly compiled by Knox and his fellow preachers. It is said that Lethington toned down asperities. To see it pass in such a sort as it did surprised Elizabeth's envoy Randolph. The Scot was not yet a born theologian. Lethington hinted that further amendments could be made if Elizabeth desired them. September 13th she made bold to tell the lutheran princes that scotland had received the same religion that is used in almain december thirtieth the reforming preachers were few but the few earnest catholics were cowed this people of a later calling as an english preacher called the scots had not known the disappointment of a young josiah's reign and heard the word with gladness there were wide differences, however, between the proceedings of the two parliaments. The English problem was comparatively simple. Long before 1559, the English church had been relieved of superfluous riches. There was only a modest aftermath for the Elizabethan scythe. In Scotland, the Kirklands were broad and were held by prelates, or quasi-prelates, who were turning Protestant or were closely related to lords of the congregation. Catholic or Calvinist, the possessor meant to keep a tight grip on the land. The bishops could be forbidden to say mass. Some of them had no desire to be troubled with that or any other duty, but the decent Anglican process, which substitutes an Edmund Grindal for an Edmund Bonner, could not be imitated. The Scottish lords, had they wished it, could not have thrust an ecclesiastical supremacy upon their Catholic queen. But to enrich the crown was not their mind. The new preachers naturally desired something like that proprietary continuity which had been preserved in England. The patrimony of the church should sustain the new religion. They soon discovered that this was a devout imagination. They had to construct an ecclesiastical polity on new lines, and they set to work upon a book of discipline. Elementary questions touching the relation between church and state were left open. Even the proceedings of the August Parliament were of doubtful validity. Contrary to want, a hundred or more of the minor barons had formed a part of the assembly. Also, it was by no means clear that the compact signed by the French envoys authorised a Parliament to assemble and do what it pleased in matters of religion. An excuse had been given to the French for refusal to ratify the treaty with England. That treaty confirmed a convention which the Scots were already breaking. Another part of the general project was not to be fulfilled. Elizabeth was not going to marry Aron, though the estates of Scotland begged this of her and set an united kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland before her eyes. Perhaps it was well that Aron was crazy, otherwise there might have been a premature enterprise. 
A king of Scots who was husband of the English queen would have been hateful in England. Scotland was not prepared for English methods of government, and Elizabeth had troubles enough to face without barbaric blood feuds as a book of discipline. She had gained a great advantage. Sudden as had been the conversion of Scotland, it was permanent. Beneath all that was fortuitous and all that was despicable. There was a moral revolt. It was almost miraculous, wrote Randolph in the June of 1560, to see how the word of God takes place in Scotland. They are better willing to receive discipline than in any country I ever was in. Upon Sunday before noon after, there were at the sermons that confessed their offences and repented their lives before the congregation. Cecil and Dr. Wotton were present. They think to see next Sunday Lady Stonehouse, by whom the Archbishop of St. Andrews has had, without shame, five or six children openly repent herself. Elizabeth, the deliverer of Scotland, had built an external buttress for her English church. If now and then Knox gave her cross and candles a wipe, he nonetheless prayed for her and everlasting friendship. They did not love each other, but she had saved his Scottish Reformation, and he had saved her Anglican settlement. Then, at the end of this full year, there was a sudden change in France. Francis II died December 5th, 1560. Mary was a childless widow. The Guises were only the uncles of a dowager. A mere boy, Charles IX, was king. Power had passed to his mother, Catherine de Medici, and the Bourbons. They had no interest in Mary's claim on England and, to say the least, were not fanatical Catholics. After some hesitation, Mary resolved to return to Scotland. She had hoped for the hand of Philip's son, Don Carlos, but her mother-in-law had foiled her. The kingdom that had been conveyed to the Valois was not to be transferred to the Habsburg, and a niece of the Guises was not to seat herself upon the throne of Spain. The Scottish nobles were not averse to Mary's return, as Elizabeth would not marry Aran, and there was thus no longer any fear that Scotland would be merged in France. Mary was profuse of kind words. She won Lord James to her side, and even Lethington was given to understand that he could make his peace. The treaty with England she would not confirm, and would wait until she could consult with the Scottish estates. Elizabeth regarded this as a dangerous insult. Her title to the crown had been challenged, and the challenge was not withdrawn. Mary's request for safe conduct through England was rejected. Orders were given for stopping the ship that bore her towards Scotland, but apparently were cancelled at the last minute. She landed at Leith on the 19th of August, 1561. The long duel between the two queens began. The story of it must be told elsewhere, but here we may notice that for some years, the affairs of Scotland were favourable to the Elizabethan religion. Mary had issued a proclamation, August 5th, 1561, strikingly similar to that which came from Elizabeth on the first day of her reign. The state religion, which Mary found publicly and universally standing at her homecoming, was to be maintained until altered by her and the estates of the realm. But she and the estates were not at one, and her religious position was that of a barely tolerated nonconformist. Lord James and Lethington were her chief advisers, and her first military adventure was a successful contest with the turbulent but Catholic Gordons. Also, it pleased her to hold out hopes that she might accept Elizabeth's religion, if her claim to be Elizabeth's heir presumptive were conceded. 
the ratification of the treaty she still refused asserting a late afterthought that some words in it might deprive her of her right to succeed elizabeth if elizabeth left no issue she desired to meet elizabeth elizabeth desired to meet her and the scottish catholics said that mary would not return as a true christian woman from the projected interview her uncles were out for power it was the time of the colloquy of poissy september fifteen sixty one it was rumoured that theodore beza was converting the duke of guise who talked pleasantly with throckmorton about the english law of inheritance the cardinal of lorraine publicly flirted with lutheranism elizabeth learnt that her cross and candles marked her off from mere calvinian huguenots though she kept in close touch with conde and the admiral moreover the english catholics were slow to look to scotland for deliverer the alien's right to inherit was very dubious they looked rather to young darnley who was born in england and by english law was an englishman and the son of an english mother so the elizabethan religion had a fair chance of striking root before the general council could do its work the invitation to the general council came and was flatly refused may fifth fifteen sixty one at this point we must turn for one moment to an obscure and romantic episode from the first days of her reign the english queen had shown marked favour to a master of the horse lord robert dudley a young man handsome and accomplished ambitious and unprincipled the son of that duke of northumberland who set jane grey on the throne and died as a traitor dudley was a married man but lived apart from his wife amy the daughter of sir john robsart gossip said that he would kill her and marry the queen on the eighth of september fifteen sixty when he was with the queen at windsor his wife's corpse was found with broken neck at the foot of a staircase in cumnor hall some people said at once that he had procured her death and that story was soon being told in all the courts of europe but we have no proof that it was generally believed in england after a coroner's jury had given a verdict which whatever may have been its terms exculpated the husband dudley the lester of after times had throughout his life many bitter enemies but none of them so far as we know ever mentioned any evidence of his guilt that a modern english judge would dream of leaving to a jury we should see merely the unscrupulous character of the husband and the violent opportune and not easily explicable death of the wife were it not for a letter that the spanish ambassador wrote to margaret of parma that letter was not sent until its writer knew of amy's death which he mentioned in a postscript but it professed to tell of what had passed between him the queen and cecil at some earlier but not precisely defined moment of time it suggests as we read it that elizabeth knew that dudley was about to kill his wife cecil it asserts desired the ambassador to intervene and reduce his mistress to the path of virtue those who are inclined to place faith in this wonderful tale about a truly wonderful cecil will do well to remember that a postscript is sometimes composed before any part of the letter is written and that alvaro de la quadra bishop of aquila was suspected by the acute throckmorton of taking the pay of the geysers at that moment the rulers of france were refusing ratification of the edinburgh treaty and were much concerned that philip should withdraw his support from elizabeth the practical upshot of the letter is that elizabeth has plunged into an abyss of infamy 
will probably be deposed in favour of the Protestant Earl of Huntingdon, Henry Hastings, and will be imprisoned with her favourite. The sagacity of the man who wrote this can hardly be saved, except at the expense of his honesty. Howbeit Elizabeth, whether she loved Dudley or no, and this will never be known, behaved as if she had thoughts of marrying him, and showed little regard for what was said of his crime. One reading of her character, and perhaps the best, makes her heartless and nearly sexless, but for that reason indecorously desirous of appearing to the world as both the subject and the object of amorous passions. Also, she was being pestered to marry the Archduke Charles, who would not come to be looked at, or Oran, who had been looked at and rejected. Then, January 1561, there was an intrigue between the Bishop of Aquila and the suspected murderer. Philip was to favour the Queen's marriage with the self-made widower, and the parties to this unholy union were thenceforth to be good Catholics, or, at any rate, were to be subject themselves and the realm to the authority of the general council. There was superabundant falsehood on all sides. Quadra, Dudley, Cecil, and Elizabeth were all of them experts in mendacity, and the exact truth we are not likely to know when they tell the story. But the outcome of it all was that a papal nuncio, the abbot Martinengo, coming this time with Philip's full approval, arrived at Brussels with every reason to believe that Elizabeth would favourably listen to the invitation that he was bringing, and then, at the last moment, he learnt that he might not cross the channel. There are signs that Cecil had difficulty in bringing about this result. Something stood in his way. He had to stimulate the English bishops into protest, and to discover a little popish plot. There was always one to be discovered at the right moment. It is conceivable that Dudley and Quadra had, for a while, ensnared the Queen with hopes of a secure reign and an easy life. It is quite as likely that she was employing them as unconscious agents to keep the Catholics quiet, while important negotiations were pending in France and Germany. That she seriously thought of sending envoys to the Council is by no means improbable, and some stout Protestants held that this was the proper course. But while Quadra and Dudley were concocting their plot, she kept in close alliance with foreign Protestants. Arrangements for a reply to the Pope were discussed with the German Protestant princes at Naumburg, January 1561, and strenuous endeavours were made through the Puritanic Earl of Bedford to dissuade the French from participation in the Tridentine Assembly. The end of it was that the English refusal was especially emphatic, and given in such a manner as to be a rebuff not only to Rome, but to Spain. An irritating reference to a recent precedent did not mend matters. King Philip and Queen Mary had repulsed a nuncio. Another reason could be given. In Ireland, the Elizabethan religion, which had been introduced there by Act of Parliament, was not making way. In August 1560, the Pope, who had already taken upon himself to dispose of two Irish bishoprics, sent to Ireland David Wolfe, a Jesuit priest, and conferred large powers upon him. He seems to have slipped over secretly from Brittany, where he had lain hid. Elizabeth could say, and probably with truth, that his proceedings were hostile to her right and title, 
As to a council, of course she was all for a real and true, a free and general council. All Protestants were, but with the papistical affair at Trent, she would have nothing to do. Pius had thought better of her. Her lover's crypto-Catholicism had been talked of in high places. The papal legate at the French court, the Cardinal of Ferrara, had some hope of succeeding where others had failed. Not as legate of Rome or the Cardinal of Ferrara, but as Hippolito d'Est, an Italian gentleman devoted to her grace's service. There were pleasant letters, cross and candles were commended. She was asked to retain them, even as it were for the Cardinal of Ferrara's pleasure. But hardly had the council been reopened at Trent, January 18, 1562, than Elizabeth was allying herself with the Huguenots and endeavouring to form a Protestant league in Germany. The dream of a France that would peacefully lapse from the Roman obedience was broken at Vassy, March 1, 1562, and the first war of religion began. In April, Shells came to England as Condé's envoy and was accredited by Hotman to Cecil. The danger to England was explained by the Queen's secretary. The crown of France would be in the hands of the Geysians. The King of Spain would help them. The Queen of Scots would marry Don Carlos. And the council would condemn the Protestants and give their dominions to a Catholic invader. July 20th. On the other hand, Calais, Dieppe, or Havre, perhaps all three, might be Elizabeth's, so some thought. Indeed, all Picardy, Normandy, and Gascony might belong to England again. The Queen had been thinking of such possibilities. Already in June 1560, an offer of certain towns in Brittany and Normandy had been made for her. She hesitated long, but yielded, and on the 20th of September 1562, concluded the Treaty of Hampton Court with the Prince of Condé. She was to help with money and mend and hold Havre, Dieppe, and Rouen until Calais was restored. It was a questionable step, but Philip was interfering on the Catholic side, and Calais was covetable. Of course, she was not at war with Charles IX, far from it. She was bent on delivering the poor lad and his mother from his rebellious subjects, who were also her inveterate enemies. The guises of religion she said as little as possible, but the church of which she was the supreme governor affirmed in prayer that the Gallic and Catholics were enemies of God's eternal word, and that the Calvinists were persecuted for the profession of God's holy name. The expedition to Havre failed disastrously. After the Battle of Dreux, December 19, 1562, and the Edict of Amboise, March 19, 1563, all parties in France united to expel the invader. The Earl of Warwick, Ambrose Dudley, and his plague-stricken army were compelled to evacuate Havre after a stubborn resistance, July 28th, and the recovery of Calais was further off than ever. Elizabeth had played with the fire once too often. She never after this thought well of Huguenots and friendship with the ruling powers of France became the central feature of her resolutely pacific policy. However, when, at the beginning of 1563, she met her second parliament and the Reformed Church of England held its first council, all was going well. Since October, an English army had once more been holding a French town. A foolhardy plot devised by some young nephews of Cardinal Paul had been opportunely discovered and the French and Spanish ambassadors were supposed to have had a hand in it. Some notes of Cecil's suggest effective parliamentary rhetoric. 
fifteen fifty nine the religion of christ restored foreign authority rejected fifteen sixty the french at the request of the scots partly by force partly by agreement sent back to france and scotland sent free from the servitude of the pope fifteen sixty one the debased copper and brass coinage replaced by gold and silver england formerly unarmed supplied more abundantly than any other country with arms munitions and artillery fifteen sixty two the tottering church of christ in france succoured the queen it is true was tormenting her faithful subjects by playing fast and loose with all her many wooers and by disallowing all talk of what would happen at her death it was a policy that a few women could have maintained but was sagacious and successful it made men pray that her days might be long for when compared with her sisters they were good days and when they were over there would be civil war we hear the preacher how was this our realm then pestered with strangers strange gods strange languages strange religions strange coin and now how peaceably rid of them all so there was no difficulty about a supply of money and another turn might be given to the screw of conformity some new classes of persons members of the house of commons lawyers schoolmasters were to take the oath of supremacy a first refusal was to bring imprisonment and forfeiture a second death the temporal lords procured their own exemption on the ground that the queen was otherwise sufficiently assured of their loyalty that might be so but she was also sufficiently assured of a majority in the upper house for there sat in it four-and-twenty spiritual lords of her own nomination the spanish ambassador reported january fourteenth fifteen sixty three that at the opening of this parliament the preacher noel dean of st paul's urged the queen to kill the caged wolves thereby being meant the marian bishops noel's sermon is extant and says too much about the duty of slaying the ungodly hitherto the reformers men to whom cranmer and ridley were dear friends and honoured masters had shown an admirable self-restraint a few savage words had been said but they had not all come from one side christopher goodman desired that the bloody bishops should be slain but he had been kept out of england as a dangerous fanatic dr john's story in open parliament had gloried in his own cruelty and had regretted that in mary's day the axe had not been laid to the root of the tree at a time when letters from the netherlands france or spain were always telling of burnt protestants nobody was burnt in england and very few people lay in prison for conscience sake the deprived bishop seemed to have been left at large until papaglia's mission then they were sent to gaol probably they could be lawfully imprisoned as contumacious excommunicates montenengo's advent induced cecil to clap his hand on a few mass-mongers and on some laymen who had held office under mary but in these years of horror it is a small matter if a score of catholics are kept in that tower where elizabeth was lately confined and her preachers had some right to speak of an unexampled clemency rightly or wrongly but very naturally there was one man especially odious to the protestants when the statute of fifteen sixty three was passed it was said among the catholics that bonner would soon be done to death and the oath that he had already refused was tendered to him a second time by horn the occupant of the see of winchester the tender was not only valid if horn was bishop of the diocese bonner who it is said 
had the aid of Plowden, the most famous pleader of the time, threatened to raise the fundamental question whether Horne and his fellows were lawful bishops. He was prepared to dispute the validity of the quasi-papal power of supplying defects, which the Queen had assumed, to attack the very heart of the new order of things. Elizabeth, however, was not to be hurried into violence. The proceedings against him were stayed. Her bishops were compelled to petition the Parliament of 1566 for a declaration that they were lawful bishops. Their prayer was not granted except with the proviso that none of their past acts touching life and property were to be thereby validated, and eleven out of some thirty-five temporal lords were for leaving Dr. Parker and his suffragans in their uncomfortably dubious position. Elizabeth allowed lords and commons to discuss and confirm her letter's patent. She was allowing all to see that no Catholic who refrained from plots need fear anything worse than twelve-penny fines, but she had not yet been excommunicated and deposed. A project for excommunication and deposition was sent to Trent from Louvain, where the Catholic exiles from England congregated, like Knox and Goodman in Mary's reign. Those who had fled from persecution were already setting themselves to exasperate the persecutor. The plan that found favour with them in 1563 involved the action of the Emperor's son, the Archduke Charles. He was to marry Mary Stuart, who, however, had set her heart on a grander match, and then he was to execute the papal ban. Englishmen, it was said, would never again accept as king the heir to the throne of Spain. But his Austrian kinsman would be an unexceptionable candidate or conqueror. The papal legates at Trent consulted the emperor, who told his ambassadors that if the council wished to make itself ridiculous, it had better depose Elizabeth. He and his would have nothing to do with this absurd and dangerous scheme. June 19. Soon afterwards, he was allowing his son's marriage, not with the Catholic Mary, but with the heretical Elizabeth, to be once more discussed, and the negotiations for this union were being conducted by the eminently Lutheran Duke of Württemberg, who apparently thought that pure religion would be the gainer if a Habsburg, Ferdinand's son and Maximilian's brother, became king of a Protestant England. Philip, too, though he had no wish to quarrel with his uncle, began seriously to think that, in the interest of the Catholic faith and the Catholic king, Mary Stuart, was right in preferring the Spanish to the Austrian Charles, and at the same time he was being assured from Rome that it was respect for him which had prevented Pius from bringing Elizabeth's case before the assembled fathers. She was protected from the anathema which, in 1563, might have been a serious matter by conflicting policies of the worldliest sort. The only member of the English episcopate who was at Trent the fugitive Marian Bishop of St. Asaph might do his worst, but the safe course for ecclesiastical power was to make a beginning with Jean d'Arbray and wait to see whether any good would come of the sentence. Ferdinand, however, begged Elizabeth to take pity on the imprisoned prelates, and she courted most of them upon their Protestant successors. The English Catholics learnt from the Pope, whom they consulted through the Spanish ambassadors at London and Rome, that they ought not attend the English churches, October 1562. 
As a matter of expediency, this was a questionable decision. It is clear that the zealous Romanists overestimated the number of those Englishmen whose preference for the old creed could be blown into flame. The state religion was beginning to capture the neutral nucleus of the nation, and the irreconcilable Catholics were compelled to appear as a Spanish party secretly corresponding with the Pope through Quadra and Vargas. Simultaneously with the Parliament, a convocation of the province of Canterbury was held, January 12, 1563, and its acts may be said to complete the great outlines of the Anglican settlement. A delicate task lay before the theologians, no other than that of producing a confession of faith. Happily, in this case, also a restoration was possible. In the last months of Edward's reign, a set of forty-two articles had been published. In the main, they were the work of Cranmer. In 1563, Parker laid a revised version of them before the assembled clergy, and, when a few more changes had been made, they took durable shape and received the royal assent. A little more alteration at a later day made them the famous Thirty-Nine Articles. To all seeming the leaders of English theological thought were remarkably unanimous. A dangerous point had been passed, just at the moment when the Roman Church was demonstrating on a grand scale its power of defining dogma. Its adversaries were becoming always less hopeful of Protestant unanimity. In particular, as Elizabeth was often hearing from Germany, the dispute about the Lord's Supper was not to be composed, and a quarrel among divines was rapidly becoming a cause of quarrel among princes. Well-intentioned attempts to construct elastic phrases had done more harm than good, and it was questionable whether the religious peace would comprehend the Calvinizing Palsgrave. As causes of political union and discord, all other questions of theology were at this moment of comparatively small importance. The line which would divide the major part of the Protestant world into two camps, to be known as Lutheran and Calvinist, was being drawn by theories of the Holy Supper. It is usual, and for the great purposes of history, it is right to class the Noxian Church of Scotland as Calvinism, though about predestination its confession of faith is as reticent as are the English articles. Had it been possible for the English church to leave untouched the hotly controverted question, the queen would have been best pleased. She knew that at Hamburg-Westphal, a champion of militant Lutheranism, never ceased an open pulpit to rail against England and spared not the chiefest magistrates. It was he who had denounced the Marian exiles as the devil's martyrs. Since the first moment of her reign, Christopher of Wurttemberg and Peter Paul Vergario had been endeavouring to secure her for the Lutheran faith. Jewel, who was to be the Anglican apologist, heard with alarm the advances made by the ex-bishop of Capodistria, and the godly duke had been pained at learning that no less than twenty-seven of the Edwardian articles swerved from the Augustan standard. They very lately had urged the queen to stand fast for a real presence. Now Lutheranism was by this time politically respectable. When there was talk of a bull against Elizabeth, the emperor knew how a distinction was to be made between her and the Lutheran princes, and could take for granted that no pope with his wits about him would fulminate a sentence against those pillars of the empire, Augustus of Saxony and Joachim of Brandenburg. When a few years later, 1570, a pope did depose Elizabeth, he was careful to accuse her of participation in impious mysteries of Calvin, by which, no doubt, he meant the scene. But though the Augustan might be the safer creed, she would not wish to separate herself from the Huguenots or the Scots, 
and could have little hope of obtaining her bishops a declaration that would satisfy the critical mind of the good Christopher. Concessions were made to him at points where little was at stake. Words were taken from his own Württemberg confession. When the perilous spot was reached, the English divines framed an article which, as long experience has shown, can be signed by men who hold different opinions, but a charge of deliberate ambiguity could not fairly be brought against the Anglican fathers. In the light of that then current controversy, we may indeed see some desire to give no needless offence to the Lutherans. And apparently the Queen suppressed until 1571, a phrase which would certainly have repelled them. But, even when this phrase was omitted, Basil would have approved the formula, and it would have given greater satisfaction at Geneva and Heidelberg than at Jena or Turbingen. A papistical controversialist tried to insert a wedge which would separate a Lutheran Parker from an Helvetic Grindal, but we find Parker hoping that Calvin, or, if not Calvin, then Vermigli, will lead the reformers at Poissy, and the only English bishop to whom Lutheran leanings can be safely attributed held aloof from his colleagues and was for a while excommunicate. It was left for Elizabeth herself to suggest by cross and candles that, as her German correspondents put it, she was living according to the divine light, that is, the confession of Augsburg, while someone assured the Queen of Navarre that these obnoxious symbols had been removed from the royal chapel as to the sacrifices of masses there could be no doubt the anathema of trent was frankly encountered by blasphemous fable elizabeth knew that her french ambassador remained ostentatiously seated when the host was elevated for reverencing the sacrament was contrary to the usages established by law in england another rock was avoided ever since fifteen thirty two there had been in the air a project for an authoritative statement of english canon law in edward's day that project took the shape of a book reformatio legum ecclesiasticarum of which cranmer and peter martyr were the chief authors but which had not received the king's sanction when death took him during elizabeth's first years we hear of it again but nothing decisive was done the draft code that has come down to us has every fault that it could have. In particular, its list of heresies is terribly severe, and apparently, but this has been doubted, the obstinate heretic is to go the way that Cranmer went. Not only the Romanists, but some at least of the Lutherans, might have been relinquished to the secular arm. Howbeit the scheme fell through under a statute of henry the eighth so much of the old canon law as was not contrariant nor repugnant to the word of god or to acts of the english parliament was to be administered by the courts of the english church practically this meant that the officials of the bishops had a fairly free hand in declaring law as they went along they were civilians the academic study of the canon law had been prohibited they were not in the least likely to contest the right of the temporal legislature to regulate spiritual affairs and the hands of the queen's ecclesiastical commissioners were free indeed large as were the powers with which she could entrust them by virtue of the act of supremacy she professedly gave them yet larger powers for they might punish offenders by fine and imprisonment, and this the old courts of the church could not do. A constitutional question of the first magnitude was to arise at this point. 
but during the early years of the reign the commissioners seemed to be chiefly employed in depriving papists of their benefices and this was lawful work but while there was an agreeable harmony in dogma and little controversy over polity the quarrel about ceremonies had begun in the convocation of fifteen sixty three resolutions which would have been left the posture of the communicants to the discretion of the bishops and would have abolished the observance of saint's day the sign of the cross in baptism and the use of organs were rejected in the lower house by the smallest of majorities it was notorious that some of the bishops favoured only the simplest rites five deans and a dozen archdeacons petitioned against the modest surplice but for its supreme governor the english church would in all likelihood have carried its own purgation far beyond the degree that had been fixed by the secular legislature to the queen however it was of the first importance that there should be no more changes before the face of the tridentine enemy and also that her occasional professions of augustan principles should have some visible support the bishops though at first with some reluctance decided to enforce the existing law and in course of time conservative sentiment began to collect around the rubrics of the prayer-book however there were some men who were not to be pacified the vesterian controversy broke out those who strove for worship purified from all taint of popery and who therefore were known as puritans scrupled the cap and gown that were to be worn by the clergy in daily life and scrupled the surplice that was to be worn in church already in fifteen sixty five resistance and punishment had begun at oxford the dean of christ church was deprived and the young gentleman at cambridge discarded the rags of the roman antichrist End of section 61